Thank you for joining us for IAB There. And now your host, Brad Behrens. Over to you, Brad. Hi, everybody. My name is Brad Behrens. I'm the Editor-in-Chief here at the IAB. Welcome to IAB There, our daily live stream where we try to connect the digital advertising industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Today is May the 4th. Happy Star Wars Day for those of you who are uh, uh, are observant of such things. Our topic today is surveying the industry landscape. And we'll be joined very uh, very shortly by Terry Kawaja of Luma. Terry is a well-known figure in the industry. I think the, the history behind what he's been doing is interesting. Round about 2010, those of us who were active in the industry started hearing about the chart. And the chart was Terry's landscape of dis the display advertising ecosystem. This is when he was at GCA Savian. This is around 2010. That was the same year that he founded Luma. Here he is with us, Terry Kowacha. Welcome to IB There. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, Brad. Uh, for those of you who are interested in posing questions, uh, the way to do that is on Twitter. So if you do have a question for Terry, please go to Twitter. Use the hashtag IAB There, all caps, one word. Our producers are monitoring the, uh, the Twitter sphere and will feed your questions into us in, in real time. So, uh, Terry, I think the question that I think is worthwhile is what exactly is your business? What does Luma do? Uh, <laughs> and and how, do you, uh, how do the Lumascapes for which you're so famous, and then you have, I think, 10 of them now. You've got them on video, mobile. Uh, how many of them are there overall? 22. 22, Two good heavens. Okay, I, yes. I, that was not even a close to a passing grade for me. Uh, uh, so what? tell me what Luma does and how sure. the Luma Skates accelerate that process. Sure. Real, uh, so real simple, uh, Luma Partners is an investment bank, and uh, we provide uh, advice to companies at the intersection of media marketing and technology. And when I say provide advice, we largely do mergers and acquisitions. And within that, most of what we work on is what I would call strategic mergers and acquisitions. What do we mean? Well, um, we're not selling companies at whatever the valuation multiple the market will, will bear. We're trying to work with between buyers and target companies, usually growth companies and usually technology growth companies uh, to better understand sort of what the buyer needs. Uh, and then we sort of do something more akin to strategic matchmaking. So the net effect of it has been uh, our transactions have averaged over 10 times revenue, which is reflective of the fact that the buyer, the acquirer sees value greater than putting just simply putting a normal market multiple on the financials of the target. We usually represent uh, the target, except that rather than starting with supply and looking for demand, we kind of do it the other way around. We try to do a match between demand and supply. And so the Lumascapes, which are, you know, everything but uh, having here be dragons on the periphery, uh, <laughs> they accelerate that process how? Well, so if you think then, if you back up and say, okay, if our mission is to intermediate strategic uh, acquisitions, well, then we kind of need to understand what are appropriate strategies uh, for companies in the space, whether they be media companies, data companies, software companies, services companies, et cetera. And in order to understand the trends, we really have to dive deep on the industry. And I have always found that the best way to start Right. If, if you're if you were looking at this industry, this fragmented, complex and dynamic industry from the outside in, 
uh, where do you start? There's so much complexity. And my view was always start with a map, start with a market map that defines who does what between uh, the principles between the marketer and, and, and the consumer. And, and, uh, and so I basically flushed out for my own purposes in 2009, when I was at GCA, just to better understand what these, all these various intermediaries do and how do they interrelate with one another? Because you can't start with trends and strategies unless you sort of understand the present. And so the purpose of the Lumascape is to have a sort of static representation of the, the relationships between all the companies in the supply chain that intermediate um, all the flow of, of dollars. And once you understand that and you uh, garner a sense for sort of what uh, you deem, what may be a trend that uh, acquirers may want to latch onto, let's step back and remember that, you know, marketers, are, you know, most companies just want growth, right? They want to grow faster. And there's two general ways one can do that. You can do that inorganically, which is, or sorry, you're going to do that organically, which is to say, build products and sell more on your own accord, or you can do it inorganically, which is just a fancy word for acquire your growth by uh, acquiring a company. And often cases, if the, if the trends are moving fast enough and the technology necessary to avail yourself of those trends is just simply too long to take to build internally, you'll end up looking for companies who have done this, maybe thought about this five years ago, got ahead of those trends, and then you can make that acquisition and bring that capability into your company. You know, it's only occurring, this This is only occurring to me right now, but uh, something that you just said, which is ultimately one of the powers of the Lumascapes is that it's an internal tool that you created that you're then using externally. And so in some ways, the metaphor really would be Amazon Web Services, which started out as a way for Amazon to have enough capacity for uh, the holiday season. And then they yep. overbuilt to such an extent that it became AWS, which is uh, the most profitable part of their company right now. Well, well yeah, in, it developed as an internal tool, right? Sort of made public at the IAB's Networks and Exchanges uh, Conference in May 3rd, 2010, right? And then the rest, as they say, is history in the sense that once it garnered a sufficient media traction, uh, then, then you had uh, effectively network effects for uh, a B2B infographic, which is sort of bizarre, but uh, you know it's now been viewed over 12 million times from over 200 countries around the world. So it's basically ubiquitous. And what that means is that we get feedback from people if there's something wrong about the Lumis game, people tell us, and we can constantly make on the fly uh, edits such that it's effectively, you know, crowdsourced. Which I think also shows that it's in addition to being a service to Luma, it's also a service to the rest of us. So, but let's dig in on this formidable amount of data that you have. We are in the beginning of uh, an economic downturn because of coronavirus. Um, it's going to be of a shape that we don't necessarily know and a duration that we don't know. But one of the things that we've seen before is that economic downturns drive consolidation. And so you have a couple of slides. I'd like to have you walk us through what we've seen so far uh, this year. And that, here come the slides right now. Thank you, yep. uh, team. Uh, and then I want, let's dig in not only on what we're seeing now, but also on what you think we're going to see uh, over Absolutely. the course of the, the back nine of this year. Absolutely. And I think if there's one, um, narrative to this, it is that 
COVID-19, I don't think that much fundamentally changes the uh, type of transactions. It, it, it largely operates as an accelerant to consolidation trends that had existed for several years, uh, although you know it, it accelerates them potentially uh, quite rapidly. So, so on this slide, we, we, we keep a running tally. Uh, we total up every year we look at the Lumascape and look, let's face it, the Lumascape is an imperfect tool, but it's, I think, sufficiently representative uh, at this point with you know hundreds, if not thousands of, of data points. And so we look at how many new companies get formed. Now, again, there's plenty of more companies get formed in the ecosystem than appear on the Lumascapes, but let's call it a, uh, you know, a reasonable proxy. How many new companies come on and then how many, you know, have been, have been acquired and all th throughout the various years for the first five years, as we did these Lumascapes and here we have two of them representative uh, display or so ad tech on the left and marketing technology or MarTech on the right, every year we did this, no matter what period one looked back upon, you would always have, despite numerous acquisitions in the on that particular uh, Lumascape, you would always have more new company formation. So the number of new companies was almost, almost always greater than the number of acquired companies. And then from the moment of 2015, that was where it hit the sort of apex of uh, fragmentation is that we are now in a net consolidation era whereby every year there are more acquisitions than there are new companies added to the ecosystem. And look, this isn't rocket science. It's just a reflection of the gestation of where we are in this industry. If we can go to the next slide, he, he, here's the way just to really of, just hold on, yeah. just slow down for one second. I, for I sure. One thing that, well, no, please go to the next slide team. Uh, but the, the thing that I'm hearing is that up until 2016, year over year, the Lumascapes were getting more complicated, more cluttered, more to tramp. But that from the, over the last four years, what we're seeing uh, as there is more, as, as we have, uh, rather than churn, we actually have more acquisitions than we have companies being founded, that the Lumascates are trend, trending towards uh, being more simpler and easier to understand. That's Correct. just the number of companies as opposed to the, you know, the inner workings of the industry, which I think are still uh, rather formidably complex. But keep, oh, keep going. Oh, no, no question, right? So, so if you think of, you know, every industry goes through what I would call a natural arc, an arc of consolidation where you have a, a period of new company formation, and then you reach maturity, and then eventually rationalization and consolidation. Every industry goes through this. So you think about, you know, uh, uh, you know, certain uh, software sectors, ERP software. There were you know, dozens and dozens of companies in the mid 80s. And, you know, now there are five of any consequence, you know, in the world. And, and even even going farther back, there were hundreds of car companies in hundreds the United States companies. 100 years ago. And now there are three, uh, well, yep. four, if you count, uh, you know, count um, Tesla, but keep going. Yeah, you, you can take this arc and kind of apply it to almost any industry and you're going to get some rough approximation of this shape. Uh, but the one distinguishing factor, if we go to the next slide, is that whilst most industries 
you sort of reach this sort of apex enumerated in dozens or maybe hundreds of companies. Uh, in the case of EdTech and MarTech, it's like it, it's like you get this arc on steroids in the sense that the you know we have reached five thousand companies across the various Lumascapes that map the intermediaries amongst all of the digital uh, uh, channels. Um, between, uh, again, between the between the principles and the marketing equation. Now, there's a variety of factors, right, that went into this. Obviously, uh, you know, if you were to overlay this with the famous uh, IAB chart of digital ad revenue, it, which is, you know, almost like a nonstop 22% compounded growth rate for 15 for the last 15 years, right? We went from a relatively nascent channel uh, of media to now the largest channel of media in the world over 130 billion of spend so uh, domestically so so that's no doubt right the opportunity uh drive the, the the tam if you will total addressable market that uh drove people to uh, entrepreneurs to launch companies and and um and pursue uh that that economic opportunity not only that you had relatively early on in 2007 you had four transactions in in the spring totaled 11 billion dollars in exits at tremendous uh, uh multiples and that really woke up the venture capital community to the opportunity in uh intermediating sort of advertising and and, and digital media and marketing um and what were those for? Do you remember any of them or all of them? Uh, yeah, that was uh, Yahoo buying uh, Right Media. That was Google buying DoubleClick. It was WPP uh, buying 24-7. Uh, uh, and it was um, uh, Microsoft uh, buying, uh, what did they name the holding company? Um, oh, oh, um, I can see he went to Madrona later on. In it Seattle, was 5 exactly. p.m. Brian. So, um, yes. Yes. Okay. For you know, that was actually the the richest one with the richest write down uh, at over uh, six billion. But so the the point is, all of a sudden you now had it's like dangling red meat in front of venture capitalists. So they, you know, what happened next was they flooded the industry with cheap capital, and of course at the same time you had revenues were going up, costs were coming down. Remember, this was the very early days of migrating to the cloud. So when you have a business like this, it, there's no hard assets. It's kind of, you know, the ease of new company formation was, was it was almost the perfect storm, right? Between the early exits, the venture capital money uh, and the, the growth of revenues in the sector caused for this tremendous, almost, well, unprecedented level of fragmentation uh, that, that occurred. So then, move on. Let's go so, on to the so next then, slide. So then, if we got. were to take this arc and now, which is in theory, and now map it to the actual data, it's it's fascinating, right? It turns out it fits pretty pretty well, right? 2015 was sort of peak number of exits, and like I said, since then we were sort of in this era of net consolidation. Now, uh, here's the interesting thing. This is this is ad tech. Uh, of the 1,934 transactions that occurred in the decade of 2009 to 2019, only 96 were greater than $100 million. And here we're going to, again, make another generalization where a $100 million exit is tantamount to a, to a quality exit. Now, of course, 
we all know that there are quality exits under 100 million and there's not uh, above. But if we just use that as a scaled proxy, sure, rule of thumb, we're really talking 5% uh, of the exits are, are quality exits. And now if we hmm. take a sort of double click onto the, the, the downslope, the, the last few years on the next slide, you'll see uh, that, you know, this is now emphasizing, uh, I've now put in the sort of first quarter annualized uh, data where you can see uh, that even on an annualized basis, we're gonna continue to drop in terms of uh, transactions, talk about, you know, what the impact of, of, of COVID-19 will be, but essentially on this down path, right? One thing to bear in mind is that not all exits are equal. So we, we have, publicly stated, we believe that we will continue to see that 5% rule apply towards the outcomes of the remaining, you know, companies. 75% of the companies we believe three quarters will, will fail, which is outright wow. fail or capitulate. And capitulate, I define as sort of selling for less than invested capital. Another 20% will sort of get a market multiple. They'll need to be sold out to hire an investment bank and try and find a buyer and you know, private equity may, may play a role there. And then the last little bit will be those strategic exits. And those are the ones you read about, right? Right, the at a big valuations that the that, that herald, um, you know, a, a, a big opportunity for the buyer. Okay, now this seems like relatively grim news, uh, but this is also grim news taking the whole, the industry overall. So if we break it down a little bit, where do you think there are positive opportunities. Where do you think that five percent is going to be coming from? What parts of the industry? Yeah, I don't. I don't think anybody should take great shock in in this data. I think a lot. Whenever you look at a large fragmented ecosystem, it turns out you kind of get similar kind of metrics when, when when it all breaks down. And think about VC economics, right? I mean, they. If, hold if, on one. Hold on one second. I think we can pull out from the slides now, guys, and get back to Terry's face. Yeah. Uh, and, and mine, uh, I'm sorry, keep, please keep going. So, so uh, you know, venture capitalists, first of all, don't, don't cry for them, right? Because they have this thing called diversification of portfolios. Uh, so if one in 20, one in 10, you know, is a massive hit, they, they do just fine. It's obviously not great for the individual entrepreneur and the investors in that particular company that, that fails. But let's understand that this is sort of Darwin at work, right? This is natural. This happens in all of these kind of uh, uh, industries where they're highly competitive, highly fragmented. And look, uh, net, net, the, the faster I think we flush through this period of consolidation to get to sort of scaled, uh, capable players that are much more uh, stable, the better it will be for the industry. So we should, we should think of, don't think of the individual entrepreneurs of those failed businesses. That's clearly bad news for them. Think of for the industry writ large, right? We should reach this period of time where you've got fewer companies doing more volume at lower take rates uh, so that it should benefit the industry overall. Okay, and COVID-19, coronavirus, ah. I think is going to accelerate all of these things. We already were accelerating towards, uh, towards the numbers and the decline we saw. Uh, and then here comes uh, COVID, which is putting a jetpack on someone who's already hurtling towards the ground. 
Right. I mean, look, there, there's a wide variety of outcomes, right? Strategic companies selling for some cases, double digit multiples of revenue. And then you've got the, you know, companies that are sort of on the, on the negative end of things selling, you know, at really, really low prices. I think the effect of COVID-19 will be to further bifurcate those outcomes between strategic outcomes and, and then capitulation uh, uh, trades. And, and again, we've seen companies shut down. We've seen companies being bought for like $10 million after having raised 70, you know, those kind of outcomes, we're, we're, we're gonna have less in the middle and more uh, bifurcated. And I think that manifests itself in terms of what we're experiencing right now, which is, you know, we got a couple of uh, deals uh, done in, in April, you know, knock on wood. Uh, and we're working on a half a dozen deals right now that I would describe as um, strategic deals whereby the acquirer, yes, sure, there's someone on pause as they're trying to, you know, figure out what the new, uh, what the future looks like and when we do uh, come back. But net, net, if it was strategic before COVID, it's going to be strategic after COVID. And I'm actually quite confident that once we get the appropriate sort of signals that we, you know, people can garner confidence that things are going to come back, I actually think we're going to see a flood of deals. Um, so, by the way, a brief PSA for our audience, which is, Terry, you mentioned the, the, uh, the, the spend report, or the revenue report that comes out that IV does with PwC. That is next week on the 12th, so uh, stay tuned and hope everybody will join us for that. Let's dig in uh, on streaming. You did a wonderful presentation at our ALM event in February in Palm Desert. You, uh, Luma spent a lot of time uh, thinking about streaming, and we're both in terms of research and anecdotally, we're seeing a tremendous amount of energy going into streaming, particularly mm -hmm. as people are trapped at home uh, and yes. looking to figure these things out. Peacock launched early. Uh, we actually got it. I'm in Oregon, uh, and we got it last week, and I've been fiddling around with it. Uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, we know HBO Max is coming at any time. So uh, what are you seeing uh, in terms of streaming in general? And specifically, because this is the Interactive Advertising Bureau, we're very interested in AVOD. And we're wondering, is this AVOD's moment uh, as people are finding constrictions in wallet, as people are being you know, more choosy about what they're watching? Uh, are, are, do you think you're going, what, what are you seeing in terms of the overall industry and specifically with advertising supported video on demand? Right. So, so I think we know this from just reading the media and we know it from our own personal habits that the growth of over the top OTT, uh, you know, television is, is pretty uh, significant. I think uh, the much of the, and there's nothing like uh, existential product launches of massive companies like Disney and Apple and AT&T and Comcast to to really you know bring it when it when it comes to these launches they have left nothing uh, on on the on on the table right mm -hmm. um, they are putting a list talent against it they're doing co uh, um, uh, cross uh, marketing deals such that you know if you buy an iPhone or you subscribe to Comcast or Verizon it's free so so the bottom line is they are not taking the launches uh, any risk in terms of the launches they're going to be guaranteed to be successful and they have been even with those promotions it's phenomenal that disney plus has garnered you know 50 million paying oh, yeah. or subscribers in the first in the first five months um and so much of the early fanfare has been 
oriented towards the subscription and why not, right? Uh, the early adopters tend to be the higher demo, higher, you know, wealthier demos on the coasts. Uh, uh, and, and so they will adopt, you know, subscriptions uh, first, but it uh, seems to me inevitable uh, that the sort of the second wave of OTT, you know, fanfare will really, and, and maybe it won't have as much fanfare uh, because, you know, for subscription, you have to do a lot of work for the customer acquisition, whereas in AVOD, you can offer it uh, for free and then just monetize uh, with viewership. But yes, I think ultimately AVOD will be the uh, a very, very significant monetization channel for OTT. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't worry about, I mean, it's common. AVOD will develop an $8 billion market. Now eMarketers got it at over 20 billion in, in four years. It's common. And so uh, I think it behooves all of these media companies because you got to think about substitution, right? In a world of linear TV as it migrates to OTT, you've really got to substitute sort of two of your pay models. One is paid. You're not going to get it through the cable bundle from the from the MSO anymore. You're gonna to have to get it directly from uh, subscribers. And on the ad supported side, obviously it's gonna shift in terms of the you know dynamic ad insertion available for the OTT world, which mirrors much closer to uh, the digital ad world in terms of flexibility and ability to target and segment your, your audience. So any prediction on whether or not we'll see Netflix start to accept ads or Disney Plus? I mean, that's... Um, so, so this 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 question of you know will Netflix ever move into advertising? I think it's entirely possible that they will. It just it's just that it won't look like anything that we think of in terms of ad formats uh, today. You know, if you go on to Netflix, they do a great job with their personalization engine of all these previews. Well, imagine those as paid previews. I mean, you know, so so I think uh, it'll it'll look a lot more like content, but I don't I wouldn't be surprised. It there's they don't need to do it anytime soon, right? They've got rest of world opportunities to grow internationally and I think they'll stick to the knitting until such time as uh, they feel like it'll be uh, additive. When growth plateaus, then they'll probably go into taking ads. So, um, and but then I, I suspect they'll always do it with a with a view to the consumer because then I don't think they ever want to piss off the the consumer. So they won't make some of the mistakes that the ad industry has done in terms of sort of disregarding uh, uh, the consumer in terms of w what the ad unit is and the nature of the value proposition. You no, know, I, I think their zealous commuter uh, consumer focus is, has been well well uh, well documented. There also are a lot of brands that are doing a lot of interesting work with Netflix. It's just not ads. Correct. Uh, we have someone uh, wishing us best wishes from Hamburg, Germany, asking uh, what your take is on the recent changes at Xander, which is to say being integrated with Warner Media. Yeah. Who was uh, one of our guests uh, earlier in the life of the show, um, you know, taking on a, uh, his, the uh, increased role as chief business officer. Do you have any uh, opinion? And passing is fine. Um, no, no, I never pass. Uh, no, always, always candid and unfiltered. Look, I think it was inevitable. Um, I think they pretty much needed to have it be a separate division at the outset in order to put the requisite focus on on the sort of data applications and 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 building that sort of platform 
uh, business, which is, you know, a lot more, again, a lot more sort of digital centric than it is linear. That said, uh, you know, Warner Media's primary, uh, uh, you know, revenue monetization comes from uh, linear TV or comes from the, you know, the sight, sound and motion. And so um, it's, it's just logical that they uh, fold it in there. I guess the question, ultimate question now will be for, for Kirk, and I'm pleased he's uh, continuing uh, to run it, is uh, I understand how they will integrate it for Warner Media's O&O. Will it remain, like Comcast's Freewheel, a, a platform for, for, for other publishers as it gets integrated with Warner Media? Uh, we'll be watching that one too. Uh, let me ask, um, as we're starting to wind down, there's never enough time when we're, you and I are chatting. Uh, so what do you think the big M&A events are that we still have to look forward to this year or, or early next year? Like what, what do you think is gonna be happening despite uh, all of the tumults because of coronavirus? Yeah, you would you ask me about KPIs, what, what we're looking at and, and what events uh, uh, you know, should, should we be mindful of? I am, I very much take the view that M&A is not uh, a hard science. Uh, it's a soft art. And by that, I mean, sure, there is the valuation work and the financial work, and clearly that's, that's math. Um, but as it relates to the drivers, the impetuses, the catalysts, if you will, towards, uh, towards industry consolidation, it tends, and, and, and therefore uh, deals, it's really a function of confidence, uh, which again is more nuanced art than it is than it is science. So, so I'm not sure. There's, of course, we're going to want to look for economic indicators. We're going to want to look at ad spend. We're going to want to look at the underlying health of how the business comes back. But at the end of the day, people, uh, buyers don't find the trigger finger unless they have confidence that there's some stability to the ecosystem. And once, and, and so that's number one. And number two is they also tend to be lemmings in the sense of, you know, it's, it's okay for you to move if others are moving. So I believe one of the critical things to watch for as we come uh, out of, of COVID into the summer and figure out when, the, when we sort of return to, you know, quote unquote business as usual, will be to see a strategic, a scaled strategic deal that clearly was done in the in the time frame uh, of of COVID, right? Because we saw a few deals, you know, Fox bought Tubi. I would say it was a very strategic deal, reflective of the fact that you know TV is changing. But that was a deal that was negotiated long before COVID occurred, and they were lucky enough to get it over the finish line at the at the outset of COVID. I'm talking about a deal that gets announced in June, July, August, where people will look to that and say, oh, the water's okay to get back in. Because I think it's that first deal that really gets people, you know, will jack people's confidence that, yes, we can do this again. And then, I, like I said, I think it'll open a floodgate of transactions where we'll see a lot of volume in the, in the fall and into, and into next year. So we're running out of time, but I do want to ask uh, one last question. You are uh, a banker, but uh, I often think of you as a filmmaker trapped in the body of a banker. You, you, your uh, comic videos uh, are quite celebrated. What are you working on right now? Is there something we can look forward to in the comic ah, Well. Uh, you know, uh, yes. Uh, so they say, you know, creativity thrives in, in times of crises. Look, I had a bunch of time on my hands. And uh, so, yeah, I've, I've played around with a few sort of COVID-related uh, 
comedic uh, outtakes, but the one that's uh, I was I was like ninety five percent done uh, with a parody video about Stream Wars, um, but uh, I was filming all these uh, industry cameos. I only got a few left to go, and of course. Uh, I can't wait to come out with that one because not only will that be a non-COVID related comedy, it'll be a, you know, growth oriented one. I think we can, we can then we'll come out, we'll declare that, that we're back. Well, if you want uh, want us to premiere it uh, here, why don't we have a conversation about well, this? Well, you, you put it this way. This is an unusual one in the sense that uh, this time I picked a Sia song and it required everyone doing a cameo to wear the Sia wig. And you would not believe what industry bigwigs have in fact done just that. They've worn a big wig. Big wigs and see a wigs. Terry Kawaja, thank you so much for joining us on IAB there. I hope we'll have you back soon. Great to yeah. see you, Brad. Thank you so much for joining us on IAB there. Uh, to, on tomorrow's show, we're excited to welcome Sarah Hofstetter, the new president and board member for Profitero. We'll, talk, we'll be looking to talk about the impact of coronavirus on shopping behaviors. IAB there is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Our show today was produced by Connor Healy, Joe Ons, John Ward, and Tufika Mahinadin. I'm Brad Behrens, Editor-in-Chief here at the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Thank you so much for joining us. Come back tomorrow because you know that if it's 2 p.m. on a weekday, it's time to IAB there. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. Thanks so much. <laughs>